Sir Edmund Hillary failed in several attempts to climb Mount Everest, the tallest mountain in the world. And on one occasion, he had to leave five associates behind to die at the side of the mountain. Still, the British Parliament wanted to recognize his efforts, so they invited Hillary into their chambers. They even placed a, a picture of Mount Everest on the front of the room. And when Hillary entered the room, the members of the Parliament stood, and they began to applaud, and they saw tears come down his face, and they assumed that these were you know, tears of joy and, and gratefulness, but they were not. Hillary walked to the front of the room and literally pounded on the picture of Mount Everest, and he screamed at the mountain, you defeated me, but you won't defeat me again. Because you have grown all that you can, but I am still growing. End quote. And ultimately, he became the first person to climb Mount Everest. Why? Because he continued to grow, and he refused to be satisfied with just a good attempt. Growing for Hillary was about climbing a mountain. What is growth like for us? Well, it has obviously other dimensions. It can be spiritual growth. Uh, it can be maturity. It can be learning to love. These are factors that First Peter delves into. The, the latter part of uh, chapter 1 is elaborating on love. And then he's moving into a section on spiritual growth. And he's tying these, these uh, two things together. He talks about what inhibits love as well and what inhibits our growth. That's what we're going to talk about today. So let's stand and take a look at this passage. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Father, we believe you're good. We believe that you want us to grow and we believe that the preaching of your word accomplishes that. So we invite your Holy Spirit to be our teacher, to apply it to our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Put away. It's a clarion call of ridding ourselves of attitudes and practices that prohibit or inhibit love. These characteristics are like a cancer upon our system. They indicate that the fleshly passions of our life have gone unabated. Peter is asking for eradication, not compromise. Put them away. It reminds us of the story of Saul, who was told by God to destroy Amalek and not take anything from the city but see to it that it was all destroyed. Instead, he destroyed most of it, but he took some of the best things. We read this, but Saul and the people spared Agog and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king. For he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. 
failed to follow the Lord's commandment to kill everything. Half obedience is still disobedience. There must be a deliberate rejection of malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander whenever they raise their ugly head. All these sins aim at harming other people. It's the opposite of love. Love seeks the good of others. Now, I think part of putting these sins away is acknowledging the damage that they do to a loving, authentic community, and I would say even families. There's a putting away that needs to take place within some of our families where these things are occurring. Putting away is the same verb used of taking off clothes. We have to uh, deliberately dispense of these things. That's the attitude that we're to have with evil. The writer of Hebrews encourages the same thing when it says, lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. It's the same idea. Anything that hinders our spiritual growth, and in our case, our progress with love, spiritual maturity, should be laid aside. So let's look at the first one, malice. Malice is a desire to harm others. Even when outwardly, we hide behind looking good. Commandments to rid ourselves of it are repeated in Colossians 3.8 and James 1.21. We do this when we lie about another person. Or we make sure that we spread ill will about another. We talk behind their back. Malice makes sure we present others in a negative light. It should have no place within the body of Christ. And by the way, it includes the holding of grudges with other people. You know where this starts, in my opinion? It starts in our bedrooms. When we okay it within our bedrooms between husband and wife, it'll spread. You have to be that diligent that even as a couple... Janet and I have fought hard not to do this. We have many things, and you have many things in your life that are hurts, and and it's easy to run people down, but you have to stop yourself and not to let this spread, even in your bedroom. A German company has started a business to allow people to call them and then to swear and to vent their anger and frustration at the operator to simply blow off steam. Two bucks a minute to swear. I can do that for free. (laughs) However, such uh, passions do not subside when we let them go. It's like a lion feasting on meat. We develop a fleshly appetite instead of applying discipline to our fleshly expressions. I don't think there is anything else that depicts our modern society more than this. It's the idea that that people should follow their fleshly patterns to be free and to find their true self. That is the definition of our world today. 
and particularly of this culture. Follow your passions to be truly yourself. Now, by passions, I mean fleshly passions. I don't mean, you know, be an artist or something like that. I'm talking about our fleshly passions. Next is deceit. It's deliberate dishonesty. It means to mislead other people with lies. Isn't it interesting that Christ is said to have never been guilty of this in 1 Peter 2.22? Imagine that. Not once did he lie. That's a pretty amazing thing. The Greek word means to have bait on a fish hook, how it's used. If you think about it, bait is kind of a deceitful thing. You know, we put a little bait on the hook and tell the fish here, come and we'd like to feed you. When our real motive is to eat them. Right? So what I'd suggest, every time you catch a fish, you need to repent of your sin. Right? <laughs> Hypocrisy means to pretend piety, to pretend love when it's not in your heart. The word comes from the theater of an actor who would wear a mask to take on a part, to impersonate someone. In other words, the true identity is covered up. I read of a story of the police in Oregon that were looking for a guy who stole a car a woman had left her baby in the car, left it running, just went into the store to get milk. He jumped in the car, took off, and realized a four-year-old was in the back seat. So he drove the car back. And what did he do? He lectured the woman on leaving her child in the car. And then what did he do? He took the car. That's hypocrisy. Envy means resentful discontent. Jealousy wants what other people have. Envy wants what other people have but because they don't want them to have it. It takes it a step further. They not only want what other people have, but they don't want the other person to have it. James Denny called envy the last sin to die in the Christian community. You know what the antidote for envy is? It's to hope and pray for other people's success and then to help them get there. I heard a story of a friend of mine who talked of a pastor in another state who was envious because his youth pastor was going to another church. So, uh, they had a big get-together for this youth pastor and uh, had him up on a Sunday morning. And the pastor handed him an envelope and said, here's money from our congregation that wants to bless you. He went home, opened up the envelope. Nothing was in it. The pastor just wanted to do it for the appearance. He took all the money because he did not want to bless that guy because he left Okay, that's low down, right, that right there, all right? But that's envy. Slander is backbiting, lying, speaking against someone to run them down. It assaults the character. Slander is not to be entertained in the least, but it is to be repented of. 
Do you agree with me that these are sins we normally just do and don't think about it twice? It's not to be entertained. If I were to ask you, what was the greatest speech in American history, most of you would say the Gettysburg Address. A very short speech by Abraham Lincoln. But did you know that it was also an opportunity for slander? A New York newspaper accused Lincoln of gross ignorance. A Chicago paper observed, the cheek of every American must tingle with shame as he reads the silly, flat, and dishwatery utterances of the man who has to be pointed out to intelligent uh, foreigners as the President of the United States. Foreign newspapers also criticized Lincoln's remarks. The Times of London commented, the ceremony at Gettysburg was rendered ludicrous by some of the sallies of that poor President Lincoln. See, slander's goal is never truth. It's usually just to cause hurt or to puff ourselves up. Peter's direction is to first put away or recognize the sin of these fleshly characteristics and to decidedly repent of them. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. I want us to notice a connection here. Some of you are struggling with the passion for the word of God. Maybe there's other sins that need to be confessed, like what Peter listed here, because it can take away our passion. I think that's the link that's intended here. The term used in verse 2, interpreted as the spiritual maturity of Peter's audience, newborn infants. But is that really what he means? Uh, Do they need milk instead of meat? Is that his point? The purpose of the verse, rather, is to highlight the desire that believers are to have for the Word of God, much like a baby would want milk. The baby craves the milk, is consumed with having the milk more than any other priority. So I think it seems better to view this verse as a trait of our desire and pursuit of spiritual food, not a commentary on the level of maturity. The spiritual milk here is said to be free of impurities. The scripture is free of impurity or imperfection. Many people don't believe that. Many people who call themselves Christians do not believe that. They believe that the word of God is infected with the Old Testament and other verses that speak of things like judgment or the passage I read about Saul where he had to destroy a community. Let me tell you something. This is the original lie by Satan in the Garden of Eden. Is that really what God said? He continues with the same lie today. But the word of God will not deceive us. It will not lead us astray like the falsehood of some people. All believers need to long for the nourishment of this pure milk. God's word is what feeds the soul. The word of God has no ulterior motive like many humans, but its only purpose is nourishing the soul. So how can I increase my passion, my appetite for God's word? Well, 
It's interesting what some commentators say. They say, well, first of all, if you don't have any kind of hunger for God's word, that obviously shows you're not a Christian. Well, I suppose that could be the case for some individuals, but that's certainly not the point Peter is making here. That's not the topic. He's saying a healthy infant is a hungry infant. A spiritually healthy Christian is a hungry Christian. Combining this with verse 1, we could say growth is hindered without pruning away the fleshly characteristics. Perhaps a couple lessons we can learn as to why appetites are not piqued for God's word is because Christians are snacking on stuff that fills the heart with impurities. You know, if children are trained just eating junk food, do you think that they're going to be really interested in eating vegetables when it's presented to them? There is no other entity that is a substitute for the Word of God. As we grow, we discover that the Word of God is, is bread, it's honey, it's to train our appetites. Job said, I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. David, the author of Psalm 19, said, The law of the Lord is more to be desired, are they, than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. And in Psalm 119, my soul keeps his testimonies. I love them exceedingly. So what is it about a newborn babe? Have you ever noticed that a baby in the crib cares not about the wallpaper in the room? Cares not about the color of his or her outfit? The baby doesn't care about any of that. The baby only cares about drinking milk. It's pretty straightforward. Baby gets milk, baby is happy. Baby not fed, baby cries more. Right? And as long as the church understands this, we will feed on what is truly needed and the saints will grow. But as long as entertainment is our lead and the word takes a back seat, maturing believers will not be the target. Listen, there are always times in which the Word of God will collide with the culture or even a common political stream of thought. And the church has to decide whether it's going to give red meat to the parishioners to make them feel better or be faithful to the preaching of the Word of God verse by verse. Which is it? You know, I'm not sure Jeremiah would be hired by many churches today, the prophet, because when he preached what God wanted him to, most hated his sermons. Put that on your resume when you want a new church. Most hate my sermons. See what kind of job that gets you. The psalmist said, we are desperate for a change, desperate for truth like a deer Pants for water because he knows if he doesn't get a drink, he's going to die. That's the idea. I am desperate for the word of God. Our passage says to grow into salvation here in, in verse 2. 
Now, this is not the initial act of salvation of when you were saved. We grow spiritually by a process of maturing in Christ. The Bible speaks of salvation in really three stages. I don't mean to get too technical, but you have the, the initial conversion. Then there's sanctification, maturing. There's glorification of the culmination of our life in Christ. Jesus said in regards to sanctification in John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. You want to grow? You better be interacting with the word of God. I don't want to get legalistic about it and say you've got to have this much time, but this has to be involved, right? Consistently into the Word of God, feeding on it yourself. And then here's an interesting one. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. What? You know what that means? It's simple. That when you are involved in immorality, it's going to stunt your growth your spiritual growth. Don't be so disobedient in one area and then feign obedience in another. When God has clearly shown you disobedience, then you obey it. You do it. We mature in salvation as we repent and stay away from sin and drink in the word of God. Verse three, if indeed you've tasted the word, tasted that the Lord is good, the word is good, of course, may be difficult for some of us to understand that the Lord is good. I'll admit that. When we've come to Christ, we understand his grace, maybe initial salvation. It's awesome, but then something occurs in life. Some horrendous act happens to us. God is good? Nah, I don't think so. They look at the world around them, they surmise the world is terrible, so God is not so good. Our consequences do not equal the character of God. It's not too unlike marriage. I've talked to some people who see marriage like a siege upon a person's freedom and happiness. They've been severely pained by a spouse. And they see little good from the institution of marriage. When that is your experience, it's not too difficult to see why you might think that. But I think if you've gone through that, even you intuitively know that that doesn't describe every single person. That's not definitive for everyone. The fault is not with marriage, but with human beings who are fleshly and given to their passions without humbling themselves before each other. Again, this is not to deny horrible experience in life. It says more about people and about the sin of the world than it does about the character of God. That might be hard to see if you're in a bad marriage, but I've never seen a bad marriage that is not able to turn around with repentance, with humbleness. I see it time and time again where you think, you know, this, this one's done. People are so hurt, and then... When both, it takes two to make a good marriage. Don't get me wrong. Can't just do it with one. It takes two. They humble themselves. And God begins to build into that. And that's the root of most of our problems, is it not? That's what James says. Is we're unwilling to humble ourselves. You know, when I talk to people who have rejected Christianity, the majority of people have a beef 
not so much with God as it is with the church, with Christians. In fact, if they have a concept with God, it's usually self-generated, unlike the God who reveals himself in Scripture. And, and I, I, don't, I never argue with people about their view of the church or other Christians because I basically agree with them <laughs> for the most part. But it doesn't speak of every church. But there is uh, pain and much evil done in the name of God within churches. I get that. I don't, I don't question that. But that's not God. That's churches. And maybe a challenge that we could make to our doubting friends is why don't you go to the original source? Why don't you go to the revelation of God and read maybe the Gospel of John and see how God reveals himself and then see what you don't like about that picture instead of the one that you've created in your own mind. And we'd be happy to sit down and talk about that. But let's, let's go to the source first and use that as our baseline instead of this church, that experience. Not to deny that. The Bible stands notably unshaken by the fury of destructive critics while the unbelieving culture instead is marked for ruin and they urgently need the message of salvation. And that's on us. You don't have to know every Bible verse. You don't have to have an explanation for you know, every doubt. But what you can do is point people to Jesus and point them to the word of God. Now, if they don't want to take you up on that, that's on them. But to be intellectually honest, you've got to at least make an attempt to know what the Bible really says if you're going to be a judge of it. You know, to date, archaeological evidence has confirmed the historical existence of about 50 Old Testament figures, most of them kings. See, the Bible is a record of history, and it's God's revelation. It demonstrates God's movement with his people. It deserves our confidence. It will always lead us to spiritual maturity. I'm not sure everybody's being led to spiritual maturity. I'm not sure everybody's being led well. One Amazon truck driver in Boulder, Colorado, was following his GPS religiously when he veered onto a golf course and got the truck stuck trying to go through a tunnel meant only for golf carts. You can't make this up. <laughs> Would the Bible lead you astray? Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray.